Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. This season of Build is dedicated to a topic we've become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with leaders from PLG companies to find out about what it took to build and scale their businesses, advice they would give their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. This episode of Build features Eugenio Pace, co-founder and CEO of Auth0. Fundamentally, they're trying to answer two questions. Are you who you say you are? And what can you do? Find out how their product answers these questions and the companies that inspired how they operate today. Thank you so much for joining us today on Build. Welcome. You know, for those that aren't familiar with Auth0, could you just provide a little bit of background on the company that you've built and what you provide? Sure. Thank you. Auth0 is a service for developers to take care of all the authentication and authorization requirements. So if you're familiar with the, you know, the login box of a website, everything that powers that login box, it's at zero. That's great. And, you know, that's something that I think for, you know, a casual observer, certainly for you know, somebody who's non-technical, login boxes have existed for a long time. So what did you see either in that process or in the technology opportunity, you know, that made you decide there was A, you know, a problem to be solved and B, that you and, and sort of the team that you've built around you were the people to do it, and now was the time? Yeah, that's a great question. And I get this question a lot, actually. They say, like, well, what's new about a login box? The reality is that it, it's nothing new, and there's a lot of things that are new. So first of all, it's a very, very old problem. So since we have computers, you know, my mom used to work in a data center long, long time ago. I hope that she doesn't hear this. And uh, she had to enter uh, credentials. You know, she entered like, you know, her username and a password at that time. That was a mainframe in the 70s. And so since there's computers, there's a need to authenticate who the user is, who is the subject interacting with the computer. What's timely now, it's that, you know, the world has gotten more complicated and the need has not gone away. You know, if you look around us, a login box is perhaps the simplest expression of knowing who the user is. But if you look around, you know, in my home, for example, I have a Nest thermostat, I have a August smart lock, I have an Alexa device, an Echo. And so, you know, all those three things are unrelated. They're built by different companies, yet they all need to know who I am and who the rest of the family is, so they know what to do with it, right? So the need for answering two questions, there's two fundamental questions in our world. Are you who you say you are? And second, what can you do? Those two things are a little bit like um, unmovable requirements from any application, in any age, any time. Those things will never go away. Passwords will go away eventually, hopefully, but the fundamental question will not. And so as things get more complicated and you think about other use cases, you know, you are an individual, for example, plays multiple roles in their lives, right? I'm an individual, I own a home, I have all those devices that I mentioned, but I also work for Ocero. I have an identity that it's tied to the company and the software I interact with as an employee, you know, the two questions remain. Who are you? What can you do? Right? I might be approving an expense report, but the 
completely different action from changing the temperature in a thermostat. But the fundamental question remains. And so we decided that it was about time that a service existed to remove the need for a developer to worry about answering those two questions in a broad way, right? Because, you know, as I alluded in my description, there's like consumer identity, there's workforce identity, there's business identity, there's devices. All those things were being looked at from a very specific perspective. So if I'm an employee of a company, here's a product to solve the requirements of employees working in a company accessing services. And if you are an individual going into a website, into let's say a, a retail website, then that's a completely different use case. And there were different products for that. And we realized that the two systems, even though they are very different on the surface, they are both requiring access to or answers to the same question. You know, are you who you say you are and what can you do? And so we decided to build a service that it's uh, essentially a developer-friendly or an application builder to not just exclude everybody else, you know, in building applications, but developer as in anybody building applications, providing a service that will remove the need for them to spend any time figuring out all the intricacies of consumer identity, workforce identity, business identity, device identity, or whatever other use cases come in the future, and focus all the time in what they really care about, which is their own applications, right? That's the genesis of Zero. When you have those fundamental insights and sort of take an approach that's highly relevant given kind of timing in the market and movement with a particular group, in this case developers, obviously great things can come out of it. But for you, if you rewind the clock, you know, one of the things that I definitely didn't know, and it's fascinating, right, that your mother worked, you know, in data centers and around computers in the 70s. Where for you did this focus on technology and technological problems come from? And how did you get to a point where these were the kinds of questions you were thinking about in the first place? I only very recently made the connection with my mom's activities in a data center, but I was probably seven years old or six years old, and she took me to her work. And it was like the classic, you know, glass box mainframe with punch cards, the things that we kind of look at museums today. But that was my first contact with software and hardware. She didn't work for long there, and then you know other things happened, but I always wanted to be a problem solver. If I look at my life, even though that was my first contact, I always wanted to solve problems. I was attracted to technology and the potential of technology to solve problems and to make you know life better around us. And so what I really wanted to be was a railway engineer, like if I go back in history. But I was born in Argentina many, many years ago, and trains were not particularly growing there. And so I had a very insightful conversation with my father at that time. And he said, like, you know, look, are there many trains around you here? And what opportunities do you see for you? And I said, well, the fact that there's no trains, that's more reason for me to become one, (laughs) to become an engineer and build them all. But, you know, eventually that was in high school. I went to engineering school, but I did electrical engineering. But electrical engineering and computers are so interconnected that very, very quickly my my professional life kind of diverted into software, right? And so even though I built hardware for a living for a while, 
my life then drifted into, you know, more computer science and stuff like that. And then I was very, very lucky. And I got a job at Microsoft in 2000. I joined Microsoft Argentina, and then I came to Washington, to Redmond, to Microsoft headquarters. And I joined the Visual Studio team in the what it was called at that time, the developer division. I say I'm lucky because I learned there, first of all, understanding developers thoroughly and understanding the concerns. I mean, I was a developer before, but then I understood the developer point of view from the position of somebody building software for them, right? And so being a supplier of building blocks for developers and doing that at scale, serving millions of people in different geographies, in completely different markets, in all segments. So Visual Studio was a tool being used for, you know, building line of business applications, building hardware, firmware, like everything in between. So it is general purpose platform. And so I worked for Microsoft for 13 years. The last five years of my career there were specifically around what eventually became Microsoft Azure. And one of my projects was to find anything that will stand in the way of a developer building an application in the cloud, so taking advantage of the new paradigm, but also moving applications to the cloud. So if you have already an application and you're like moving and migrating that application from the traditional on-premises world to the cloud world, what would prevent them from doing that efficiently and effectively and securely and scalably? So all the non-functional requirements. And so one of my first encounters with identity management was in that context. And it was a little bit of an eye-opener because I never thought about identity management and access control from a developer point of view. It was kind of like a given thing. You know, it's like one of those things that you're not thinking about disks and storage. As a developer, you're mostly thinking about SQL Server or a database, you know, or, or a file system, but you're not thinking about how the actual storage works or networking works. Identity management was in that category, which is like, you know, I just get a user and a principal and I'm done. But the cloud environment highlighted some of these challenges. First of all, the world was not 100% Microsoft, unfortunately for them. There were other devices. There was, you know, iPhones emerging at that time. There were IoT. There was a myriad of other things that prevented a common infrastructure to be relied on, like Active Directory. Long story short, my team published a couple books on the topic, and it was, you know, how to do modern identity management, you know, for a cloud-enabled world, in essence. We wrote two books about it. The first one was about half an inch. This was around 2009, 2010. And then in 2011, we published a second edition of the same book, which was essentially double the size. So it was like almost like an inch. So the problem was not getting smaller. The problem was getting bigger. There were more and more scenarios that we were uncovering. And that was kind of the epiphany because we said like, wow, you know, we could just keep writing books about this and hoping people will find the book, buy the book, read the book, and translate the ideas in the book and the designs in the book into actual running software. Or we can just build a service that does all of that and reduce the friction. And that was 2012. 
And so at the end of 2012, I was also, you know, approaching one of many midlife crises and said like, hey, maybe it's a time to do something different. And so we started this journey in Otsiro. And that's what we are today. That's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing it. So there's two fundamental questions that you look to allow developers to solve. You know, are you who you say you are? And what, you know, therefore, what can you do? Obviously, it sounds like the design principles of the product all came around and out of those. But as you think about your design principles for the business as a whole, for Auth0 as a company, not just the technology and product, which are obviously a core piece of it, what are those, right? What have you decided to build the business around? Yeah, so actually we looked up to a couple companies that were doing similar things in other domains. So we looked up to Twilio in voice and messaging. We looked up to SendGrid in email and core messaging. We looked up to Stripe and what they were doing in payments. And if you look at all those domains, you know, there's nothing really super sexy about sending emails or uh, voice or payments. And there's nothing sexy about authentication either. You know, these are things that developers need, that companies need. And if you look at all those companies, what was unique was in the way the company was built and the way they designed their go-to-market and the way they designed the products, you know, aligned to that vision of a market and that vision of how to tap into that market and how to go into that market. We essentially mimicked the same approach and say, well, let's try this out. This is enterprise software, but we're going to do enterprise software in a kind of a unique way. So we're not going to hire like a massive sales team. We're not going to do the classic, you know, cold calling. It's more or less what these other companies are doing and they're ahead of us and they are you know, being successful, they have traction. And we didn't have any money, by the way. So even if we wanted to build a big sales team and put all that in place, we couldn't do it. At the time, we didn't have any money and we didn't have any investors either. And so all our focus was on that piece and that model. And so the model is, in essence, appealing to a developer and appealing to the builder category and saying, like, you know, putting out there that it's easy to use. There's actually three design principles that we encoded now in our DNA, and they are like part of who we are. So the first one is the principle of simplicity. We recognize that this is a complicated space, even though it might look very simple on the surface. You know, if you look at a login screen, to pick that example, two text boxes and one button, right? Username, password, login. How hard could it be? It's a window with two text boxes and a button. Yet, you know, behind that uh, deceiving view, there's a lot of complexity, underlying complexity. Very quickly, you know, how do you store passwords? You know, how do you retrieve them? How do you compare them? How do you renew them? How do you refresh them? So even in the simplest use case, which is a username and a password, there's a lot of complexity and time spent there. So... The first principle is simplicity, is making things as simple as possible. So the common use cases, the 20% of the use cases that happen all the time, 
we just solve them out of the box, right? It's truly plug and play. There's no friction. There's no time to set up anything. There's no downloads. It's nothing. You just configure your application, wire your application to Auth0, and there you go. Very similar to, like, if you think about what Stripe does. As a developer using Stripe, you're not thinking about how actually a bank works or a clearinghouse works or the differences between MasterCard and Visa and Diners and Amex. You know, all of those cards are different systems. You're abstracted by a single API that hides that complexity from you. And the same thing happens in our world. It doesn't matter how you want to answer the two questions, whether it's a username and password, a login with Apple, a login with Google or Facebook or Twitter, or login with LDAP or SAML or Active Directory or something you know even more obscure than that. At the end of the day, you're answering the same question, right? Same principle, simplicity. And you will be surprised how hard it is to remove things and remove features and keep the things to an essence, right? Look, how long did it take us as an industry to remove all buttons from a phone? Well, you know, a similar thing here. It's uh, really difficult to be functional and still keep all the things behind the scenes so nobody needs to worry about. But then the question is, you know, what happens with the other 80% of the use cases that don't happen that often, but are needed anyway, right? So everybody has those like last mile details, last mile integrations. Everybody has like a weird legacy system they need to integrate with. And, you know, to that point, there's no company in the world that doesn't have some kind of authentication and authorization. So unless you are a startup and you start from scratch and you start with us, you know, the first day, you always have legacy in this world. Right. And so the second principle that we founded the company on, it's on extensibility. We kind of embrace the fact that there's all this complexity around it and there's all these myriad of integrations and legacy systems and whatnot. And so we empower our customers, you know, our application builders to go and tweak the way our system works in a way that it's comfortable for them. And that's, if you're an application builder, the way it's comfortable for you, it's in the way of code, right? So you can actually write code that runs in our system that augments what we do and overrides common behavior. You know, I usually use the Excel spreadsheets analogy here because I think it works very well. So if you're an Excel user, you don't need to write the formula for things like addition and, you know, average and even statistical functions. You know, Excel comes out of the box with a bunch of functions that allow you to manipulate data, right? But also something brilliant that Microsoft engineers did there was that you can write your own formulas if you don't find the formula out of the box. Instead of having to wait for Microsoft to ship the formula that you need, you can just go and write it down in a language, right? You write a macro or you write a script that essentially implements your formula. And then you have like the functionality without having to depend on anybody. So we have the equivalent of macros in our system that allows our customers to do anything. So, you know, do you want to 
challenge the user with a quirky multi-factor authentication that your company has, you don't have to replace your multi-factor authentication with ours. We give you one if you don't have one, but you can also inject that policy in our server and deliver that out of the box without us being in the middle. So that's kind of the simplicity, developer centricity, extensibility, and a focus on application builders has been the distinguishing elements of Zero. All our teams and the way we go to market are tied to those four things. That's great. And appreciate you walking us through that. And as you go back to the sort of beginning of the design principles, when, you know, obviously much, much smaller team, limited resources, was there any tension between, in the early days, sort of simplicity and extensibility? You know, if you take the Excel analogy, did you think about building the pre-built formulas first to get folks up and running? Or were you focused on, you know, making it flexible and extensible and get, you know, sort of VBAs and macros up and running in your approach to the market? And how did you go through making those decisions if there was any tension there? Yes. So it's very tempting to add new things. And adding features is one of the easiest things if you're a software company. Adding things, it's really easy. You just add more, add, add, add which is very tempting and it's a slippery slope. You know, you end up with products that have like 20 million buttons. It's like the Concord cockpit. You're like overwhelmed with all the gauges and buttons and levers. And yes, it's a very powerful thing, perhaps, but it's complicated. Usually complexity on that front brings a lot of brittle, you know, solutions because, you know, the combination of factors as you add new things tends to weaken the system, not make it stronger. So it might be stronger on the feature set, but it might be weaker on the runtime because now you combine three features and all of a sudden, you know, the chances of bugs or scalability issues and other things. Unpredictable interactions. You add more and more variables. You create more vectors for things that could create issues or or hard to predict or control. Exactly. And so less is more. And so there was... Definitely tension, but what we did is we focused on the 20% first. Let's nail what's common and out of the box. We iterated really quickly on some of the things. So like in the beginning, we supported like five social network logins, you know, like Twitter, Facebook, Google, and two others, right? But Facebook, Twitter, and Google were the most popular ones. We added, I think, Microsoft Live at one point in time, and there was something else. But as customers came coming, we said like, oh, social connections, it's a popular feature and there's new social connections uh, coming up. And so as we expanded in geographies, you know, logging in with LINE in Japan, you know, that's uh, an important feature. Nobody else logs in with LINE outside Japan for the most part. It's, you know, an Asian thing centered in Japan. So that came later in the design of the system. But Extensibility was built in early on. And the reason for that was precisely because it allowed others to decouple themselves from engineering. And when I say others, you know, early on, it wasn't our customers. Our customers were not writing the macros equivalent in our system. I was writing them. And I was like a representative of our inexistent at that time professional services team, sales engineering team, everything that was technical field. And so 
to me, that was a key ingredient for our you know, success and growth was the enablement of field teams, which, you know, in the beginning, it was just me. But I didn't have to go and turn around and ask my partner, Matthias, I need a line social identity because there's always tons of things to build. I was able to build the line identity on my own using macros and then, you know, deliver the solution for the customer very quickly. And then over time, things that were like macros, we decided to bake it into the product because it was already proven. There was enough demand. There was a big set of customers. And it made sense for us to have like one thing out of the box as opposed to, you know, 27 million macros, all in different versions. And so we said, like, when something gained critical mass in the form of these, you know, last mile integrations, macro-like things, then we said, oh, let's put it into the product. And so two great examples of this are multi-factor authentication. That was one, where in the beginning, it was just a macro. We just wrote a macro, redirected the user, challenged the user, came back and continued the journey. And we integrated in the beginning with Google Authenticator, you know, the time-based one-time passwords. And then we integrated with Duo Security that way, with their APIs. Later on, as we gained more customers, many of them were using Duo Security and many of them were using time-based one-time passwords. We just wrote and baked the macro in the core product so you didn't have to do it, right? And that like continuous stream of experimentation in the forms of these extensions and then into the core product is what allowed us to essentially focus the very, very scarce engineering resources in the core things, you know, like core logging, core authentication, core authorization, core anomaly detection, things which were like really things that would be very difficult to do on a macro. Or you would end up like writing like a 10,000 lines of code macro, which is probably not a good idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great philosophy and one that you've implemented well. Obviously, the focus on developers broadly and perhaps even builders more broadly has lent itself to a product-led growth approach right, for the company. You mentioned it at the very beginning. What does product-led growth mean for you, and what do you believe it's meant for Auth0? Most of our sales and marketing expenses in the early days were around content marketing. And so we hired a relatively large team that all they did was essentially create content for developers and for application builders in general, and explaining different topics. Our product was not necessarily at the center of it. It wasn't like, here's our product, here's our product, here's what uh, authentication without zero looks like, here's how you use our API. Because, you know, obviously that's clearly a sales motion. And uh, if there's one thing that we know, it's that developers don't like to be sold. You know, like you don't call a developer necessarily with a sales pitch. Your chances of success are not great. Developers uh, worry about problems. And so we put the problems in front of everything and we wrote about common problems. We said like, here's a challenge, here's a scenario that you might encounter. And here's all the concerns, pitfalls, 
issues. So the content is valuable on its own and can stand on its own without Auth0. Now, of course, Auth0 has an opinion in that article, and it makes things easy if you're considering that scenario, but it doesn't necessarily force you to use our service. We published a lot of tooling that has nothing to do with our product, but it's relevant to the use cases. So, you know, we have a security tokens validation, we have protocol explainers, we have a protocol tracer. All those things are connected to Auth0, but it's not a requirement to use Auth0 in any way, right? And so, like, over time, that gained momentum and gained awareness to the point that, in some cases, people started to confuse the protocols with our product. They would say, like, you know, I'm using the Auth0 protocol, which is not a protocol. Auth0 is our company. The protocol is something else. We earned our way into people's mind through this content, our contributions to the greater good, let's call it, of engineering in this domain, right? That's one component of our go-to-market. The second component is kind of tied to simplicity, but not necessarily. You can have a simple-to-use product on a complex domain like ours, but still be locked down. So, you know, call us, schedule a trial, you know, no pricing. It's like a black box, forcing people to interact with your field team because at the end of the day, you want to sell. And that's completely understandable. And by no means, I'm claiming that our formula works for everybody. I don't know. I don't make any such claims. There might be software and there might be services where this completely legitimate to, you know, put barriers of entry, so to say, for trials and etc. But for us, you know, knowing how application builders operate, if I look at myself, it's a rainy Sunday, which happens often here in Seattle, and I might be just trying new things, right? So I'm working on a pet project. If I find a service that looks interesting to me, I want to go there, click a button, have access to the service, play around on my own, read the documentation, download tools, do you know things on my own, tinker with the service, and then eventually, maybe I say like, oh, this is cool. You know, this is something I can use not in my pet project. I want to use this in my actual business, and so that's when I want to call somebody. That's when I want to call and say, hey, you know, I'm not Eugenio working on a Sunday on a pet project. I'm an engineer in this company, and I actually would like to use the service in production, but, you know, it's security. I want to talk with somebody in security. I want to talk with somebody about availability because it's going to be a critical system for me. And here's what, I have a million users. So, you know, that's a big number of users. How much am I going to be paying? That transition it's something that we navigated or we put a lot of effort in being predictable, being transparent, being, you know, open, not being a closed system. Those are the components of our go-to-market. And obviously the product is first because, you know, when you go and click on try, you are getting access to our entire product for some time. Then you get free access forever for a limited you know, functionality, the pet project, you can use it forever. But then that opens the door to, 
using our system in so-called serious applications, right? Like you are, I don't know, News Corp or, you know, like some of our biggest customers, right? You're Atlassian, you're Tableau, you know, one of those in which, you know, you have like thousands of transactions per second and obviously a high concern on security, et cetera, et cetera. Does it make sense? It makes absolute sense. And in fact, you know, if I was to try to draw commonalities or abstract it, you know, two of the principles that, that came out of there is one is obviously deliver value before you even think about capturing it, right? Make the product available, allow someone to tinker and try it, no matter what the context is in which they're doing that. And you know, valuable sort of business use cases will emerge you know, out of that. And then second, focusing on perhaps customer success ahead of sales, right? They're going to have questions. They're going to reach out. They're going to be things that they want to know. And it's about enabling them to be successful in whatever it is they're trying to do that your product is hopefully you know, going to become a key part of that or at least a part of it. And if you're you know, able to, again, deliver that value before you capture it and focus on helping that individual or that team or that company be successful in what they're doing, it'll naturally create opportunities to capture value, right? And to build sort of to build the business. Exactly. I love the customer success first. You know, when we analyze wins and we look at why did you sign a deal with us, surprisingly, one of the topics that comes up very, very often is our documentation. And they say, like, you know, we love your documentation. We just were amazed to find there's a document for everything. Everything's documented, well documented. And I want to give uh, credit where credit is you for that. That was another example of uh, Microsoft teachings where documentation played a very important role. I was always impressed by the investment that they made in general readiness, not just pure written documentation, generous readiness. I modeled customer success early on out of that. Very early on for every feature we shipped, there was a document, there was a tutorial, there was an SDK, there was enablement. Because, you know, what good does it make a, a product that cannot be easily understood and easily tied and connected to your app? So that's now part of, you know, our bigger customer success initiatives. That's great. I mean, the way I think about it is, you know, documentation is differentiation, right? It, it lines directly into this as you know, the world's moved, particularly for builders and, and for developers, but even more broadly, folks being sold software to individuals or small teams, you know, going through a buying process themselves. And the easier you make it to understand what the product does and what those capabilities are. And kind of the faster you get to aha moments or, or moments of great insight as someone's tinkering or experimenting, you know, the better it is for them and their project, and ultimately, right, the better experience they'll have with you. So that's great to hear. Maybe just shifting gears for a second, what advice would you give to yourself before beginning the Auth0 journey that you probably wouldn't have listened to then? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, Auth0 is technically my second company because, you know, my first company was very, very early on after I left school and didn't go very well for various reasons. And I think the main reason and probably the advice that I would give myself at that time, but I probably would not listen, so <laughs> unfortunately, is that I thought that uh, building a company was all about the actual technical product that you deliver, right? So I thought that that was 
essential and fundamental in everything else was like completely secondary to that. Is it kind of a proverbial, I'll build it and they will come or something along those lines? Nothing can be further from my own personal experience. You know, well, the first one failed or didn't work great. The second one, we took a completely different approach. And I learned the hard way that, you know, every discipline is important. It's a team. It's a team's effort. It's very similar to, you know, somebody told me, I'm from Argentina, so football, I mean, soccer analogies are common. And somebody said once, football is a great metaphor for life. Maybe it's a good metaphor, I'm not sure, for life, but for a company, probably. Because, you know, you don't win a game in soccer by just scoring goals, right? That's not how you win. You win by scoring more goals than the other. And so if I take that simple statement and move it to a company and say, you just don't win in a company only by selling or only by building a great product. You need a great product, you need to solve a real problem, and you need to sell and you need to market it, create awareness, and you need to educate people. And you have to do all of those things in the same way that a goalkeeper on its own will not win the game and the midfielder will not win a game on its own. It's exactly the same thing. So if there's one piece of advice, it would be, you know, having a little bit of maybe less arrogance. My scene at that time was being, you know, uh, an arrogant engineer where all things technical matter way more than anything else. But to your question, I don't necessarily regret all the things that have happened, all the things that I've done, and all the things that I haven't done. I wish in some cases they were different, but all those mistakes and all the things that happened in my life in a way shaped who I am today. And hey, yes, I wished I was maybe wiser <laughs> earlier in life, but it's what it is. And, you know, I cannot change that anyway. And so hopefully the experience will maybe help others. But in my case, you know, I'm happy where I am and I made peace with everything that has happened with my life before now. I absolutely think it will help others. And it's clearly been a lesson well learned. You know, what you built at Zero is just wonderful to see, not just in terms of the impact that it's had for developers in all situations, you know, building applications again, given it such a fundamental piece of what it means to access information, but also obviously the success that you've had as the business so far and where you're going. So Eugenio, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on Build. Yeah, it's great. I had a blast. It was uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Mackie, for the opportunity again. And I hope it uh, helps others in their journey. Hey, listeners, it's Kyle from OpenView. I wanted to give you all a heads up about our upcoming Product-Led Growth Summit in San Francisco on November 13th. There's an amazing lineup of speakers from companies like Slack, SurveyMonkey, Rothy's, Expensify, and many more. Get your ticket at plgsummit.eventbrite.com and use code BUILD for 50% off. Hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to BUILD on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. 
Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time, 